The following programming is sponsored by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Positively Pro-Life, a podcast brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Positively Pro-Life brings you inspirational stories, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm Bonnie Finnerty, Education Director at the Federation, and I am joined by my distinguished colleague, Maria Gallagher, the Legislative Director for the Federation. Welcome back, Maria. Thanks. It's so good to be back. It's great to have you back. <laughs> now, on our podcast, we've had um, a variety of guests from different organizations that have included Secular Pro-Life and the Jewish Pro-Life Foundation demonstrating that the pro-life movement is diverse in its composition. Today, we will explore the role of the Christian church in the abortion issue. We will talk with an accomplished attorney, Samuel Green, who serves as founder and president of an organization called Reason for Life. We are eager to hear what his organization is doing to help those in the pews and in the public square better understand life issues. In addition, Maria will discuss Governor Wolf's attack on the Pennsylvania Constitutional Amendment. But first, we'll begin with some pro-life inspiration. I recently read a social media post that really spoke to my heart as a mother of five. And so I thought I would share it with you, our listeners. It came from the website Motherly. And Initially, I didn't know the name of the author, but Motherly gives credit to Blondie and Bear. A Google search revealed that a woman named Jamie is a writer and has a website called The Princess and the Prosthetic Blog, where she posts a lot of her beautiful writings. And I will link to that in the podcast notes. This is what Jamie wrote that touched my heart. I was told my whole life I wouldn't be able to have a baby due to my type 1 diabetes. And so when I got pregnant, I felt like finally, this was going to be my redemption story. After years of turmoil, managing a chronic disease, after years of hospital stays and doctor's appointments, millions of shots and blood glucose checks, years of being told a baby wasn't in the cards for me and going full term would be near impossible. I did it. And yet it wasn't the redemption story I'd imagined in my mind. All of that struggle I'd endured hadn't given me the perfect birth story, the healthy baby, the cherry on the top of the Sunday, or the fairy tale as a reward. That struggle I'd endured didn't mean a thing. There was no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for me. I felt cheated. I felt like I'd had my hopes, dreams, and years of silent prayers ripped out from under me. As I sat in the NICU, for 10 weeks, watching other families leaving with their now healthy babies, I felt like God was handing out my dreams to other people. Why did they get to have the fairy tale? Why did they get the healthy baby? Why did we have to suffer with uncertainty, fear, anger, disability, chronic conditions, and grief? How come their baby would be able to walk and ours wouldn't? The thing that I didn't know at the time was I hadn't been cheated. I'd been chosen. Chosen to be her mama. Chosen to be her advocate. 
chosen to be my husband's soft place to land, chosen to navigate this new world, chosen to be her champion, chosen because I was strong, chosen because I knew what it was like to be different, chosen because I can do hard things, chosen because I'm stubborn as hell, chosen because I know grief and loss, chosen because I understood how to find joy in the everyday, chosen because I don't quit, chosen because there was no one else more perfectly suited to be her mother than me. Now, our journeys as parents are certainly unpredictable and sometimes volatile and often difficult for a variety of reasons. Um, I think we can all agree on that. But that journey is as unique as the child with whom we have been gifted. So I hope we may all see the gift of the child and the gift of being chosen to love just that child as they are. Maria. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for that inspiration. Recently, pro-abortion governor Tom Wolf tried to subvert the will of the people with a legal challenge to Senate Bill 106. The common sense bill includes a proposed constitutional amendment that would confirm that there is no constitutional right to taxpayer funding of abortion in Pennsylvania and would keep abortion out of the PA Constitution. Governor Wolf has gone to the PA Supreme Court to try to strike down the much needed legislation. But he is also going a step further, calling on the high court to declare a right to abortion in the PA Constitution. The proposed constitutional amendment would have to pass the PA House and Senate a second time before it could be placed on the ballot to let voters decide. The governor's latest legal move shows that he does not trust voters to make informed decisions about public policy. Without the constitutional amendment, the people, through their duly elected representatives, would no longer have authority to make abortion policy in Pennsylvania. Instead, abortion policy would be decided by judicial fiat, by a handful of judges who are largely unaccountable. Governor Wolf's legal arguments are fallacious and without merit. We hope the PA Supreme Court will recognize this fact and put an end to the governor's quixotic quest to circumvent the General Assembly and PA voters. Bonnie. Maria, thank you so much for that important update. Well, I am delighted at this time to introduce our guest. As a young child, Samuel Green felt called to help end abortion in the United States. That passion to save unborn children eventually led Samuel to found Reason for Life, where he now serves as president and general counsel. Before founding Reason for Life, Samuel spent five years at Alliance Defending Freedom, where he engaged in litigation to defend the sanctity of life, freedom of speech, and religious liberty. Samuel has also worked as a litigation associate at a large law firm, as a member of a presidential campaign's legal team, and as a law clerk in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Samuel finished first in his class at Pepperdine University School of Law, where he earned a Juris Doctor degree in 2011. He also studied political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he graduated summa cum laude with a Bachelor of Arts degree in 2008. Samuel has provided legislative testimony and given presentations across the country to various groups, including Students for Life of America, 40 Days for Life, the Federalist Society, and the St. Thomas More Society. 
Samuel has also participated in media interviews and published articles with various outlets, including Newsweek, the Seattle Times, The Hill, Washington Examiner, The Federalist, and The Daily Signal. Additionally, Samuel authored a legal brief in the historic Supreme Court case that overturned Roe v. Wade. We are honored to have Samuel Green join us today. Welcome, Samuel. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real honor to be here. Samuel, what is Reason for Life and how did it get its start? Reason for Life is a pro-life nonprofit ministry that is working toward ending abortion in America. And we do that through a variety of means, but our focus is largely educational with a particular emphasis on reaching the Christian community with a biblical and scientific case for life. And I founded Reason for Life because I was looking at all these studies and and learning from my own experience growing up in the Christian church and talking to other Christian friends about how sadly uh, there's a significant number of people who are in church, you know, every Sunday who are turning to abortion themselves or people who simply don't know the biblical case for life. They think the Bible is silent on the issue. They think abortion is morally acceptable. And so that was something that I wanted to see addressed. And so I founded Reason for Life by the grace of God. Samuel, just as a follow-up to that, um, I recently saw a statistic that said about 43% of the women who seek abortion actually attend church regularly. Is, is that a statistic you've come across as well? Well, I've seen some that, I don't know if I've seen the 43% number, but I've seen other numbers that show that uh, over a third of the abortions that take place involve mothers who are attending either a Protestant or a Catholic church at least once a month, and maybe your 43% statistic is a more recent one, but that just goes to show that if we could simply stop abortion within the church community, we'd be saving hundreds of thousands of lives each year in the United States. And then, of course, we as Christians are called to be salt and light in the culture. So if we can help them see that God values life and encourage them to go out and share that truth with others, we can help see a broader societal transformation that will help us eventually see a complete end to abortion in America. Yeah, I think those statistics um, really speak to the importance of your organization. So can you explain um, the name and why, why you named it Reason for Life? The Reason for Life has two basic meanings. One is, as an educational organization, we really want to reason with people. You know, the Bible says, come, let us reason together. And we want to reason for life and help lay out the biblical and scientific case for the value of children in the womb and help people see that. And then additionally, as Christians, a Christian organization, we believe, contrary to what culture tells us, that each child in the womb is of infinite value and that there is a reason for that child's life and that child deserves protection. So both to reason with people and to help them see that there is a reason and value for each life. Why is it so important to reach Christians with the pro-life message? Well, as we just discussed, there are those studies out there showing that sadly, a significant portion of the Christian population is currently okay with abortion. They're turning to abortion themselves. They don't see anything wrong with it. 
And I think we need to reach everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, with the pro-life message. And there are fantastic logical and scientific arguments that can be used to reach the culture at large, regardless of whether they look to the Bible as a source of truth. I'm so thankful that there are great organizations like your own that are spreading that message. But uh, within the Christian community, the case should be even easier, because we not only have the science showing us that life begins at the moment of conception and the beauty and complexity of life in the womb, but we have the Bible presenting a very clear and compelling case for life. And if you're talking to someone who believes in the truth of the Bible, that should be extremely persuasive to them. And also, I think there's a tendency for the church to look at the issue as a political issue that they want to stay out of. And so to help Christians and especially Christian leaders realize that this is not just a political issue, but it's also an issue with solid biblical footing, I think will encourage Christians to speak out even within the church and Christian school sectors and help bring about a needed transformation in the way people think about the issue. So in talking to Christians, you are not just preaching to the choir, or maybe you're preaching so that the choir will be more in tune. Well, sadly, we're not just preaching to the choir. We're reaching many who currently believe that abortion is morally acceptable uh, within the Catholic Church and with all the major Protestant denominations, there have been surveys showing that significant portions of those groups believe that abortion is morally acceptable. So we need to reach those individuals with the truth of the Bible, with the truth that science presents, and help them see that abortion is a grave human rights violation and a grave attack on children created by God in God's own image. And then I think there are, thankfully, many pro-life Christians, and to help them uh, elevate the issue in their minds in terms of its importance and help them become more active and more equipped to share with their Christian and non-Christian friends alike can be valuable as we seek a broader cultural transformation. And what is the Christian case against abortion? Well, I... I preach entire sermons on this topic, and I know we don't have that kind of time today, but to sort of boil it down, I say, you know, basically every Christian believes that human life is uniquely precious. We see that right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 when we learn that God created mankind, you know, both males and females, in his own image. That shows that human life is uniquely precious, and we all know that one of the Ten Commandments is a prohibition on murder. So we all agree we shouldn't be murdering human beings. They're uniquely valuable. So for the Christian, that leaves one question. Are children in the womb human beings or not? And thankfully, the Bible answers that question quite clearly for us. And I think a lot of Christians are perhaps familiar with the passage from Psalms, a beautiful passage talking about how the Lord knit us together in our mother's womb. And that shows the Lord taking an interest in children in the womb and being personally involved in their creation. And I use that scripture, and I love it, and it's beautiful. But I think there are some skeptics who say, well, that might just be a little poetic. So I like to point to some concrete examples from scripture that make uh, indisputably clear that children in the womb are fully human. They're valuable in God's eyes. And one of my favorite passages comes from the first chapter of Luke, which a lot of people read around Christmas time every year. 
And there we learn that right after Mary, the mother of Jesus, is told that she is going to have a son. She goes while pregnant with Jesus in the very early stages of pregnancy to visit her relative Elizabeth, who at that time was pregnant with John the Baptist. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 1 that at the moment that Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, that John the Baptist, quote, leaped for joy in Elizabeth's womb. And then it also tells us in Luke 1 that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit before birth. So I like to ask people, you know, culture tells us that in the womb, there's just a meaningless mass of cells. But does a meaningless mass of cells experience the emotion of joy and leap as a result of that emotion? Of course not. But we know that children leap for joy and John leaped for joy while still in the womb because he was fully human even then. And God looked at John as such a valuable person that he gave him the gift of the Holy Spirit, making him a temple of the Holy Spirit. So if that's how God looked at a child in the womb, we should not look at them with any less value. And another example I love to use is, uh, you know, there's the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Jacob was a twin, and he and his brother Esau, they didn't get along too well. And in fact, later on in the account that we read, we know that Esau actually tried to kill Jacob. But we see in the Bible that their, their struggle with one another actually happened in the womb. The Bible says that they struggled together in the womb. And it was so noticeable to their mother that she actually went to ask God about it. And he said that two nations were in her womb. And then one of the other examples I love to use comes from the book of Judges. And I don't know how many people remember from Sunday school, the story of Samson, that supernaturally strong man with really long hair who killed a lion with his bare hands. Well, Samson was a Nazarite, which is someone who is consecrated to God, who has to follow certain special rules, certain special dietary restrictions, and actually a prohibition on hair cutting, which is why Samson had his long hair. But the Bible tells us in Judges that Samson actually became a Nazarite, consecrated to God before he was born. The angel of the Lord comes to Samson's mother and tells her she's going to have a son. And he tells her to avoid certain food and certain drink so that the son within her could follow the vows of the Nazarite while still an unborn child. So we know that the common mantra of the pro-abortion community is my body, my choice. But here the Bible is making clear that God saw two bodies there. He saw the body of Samson's mother, and he saw Samson, and he looked at them both as unique individuals. God didn't call Samson's mother to be a Nazarite, but while she was pregnant, she had to follow those dietary restrictions because the child in the womb was valuable to God, and he wanted him to be a Nazarite to God right there in the womb. And so I think those examples of John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit, leaping for joy, Jacob and Esau struggling together in the womb, Samson being a Nazarite to God from the womb, make clear that God values children in the womb. They're fully human. And so we as Christians ought to value them as well and protect them. Samuel, what is the Christian response to those who've had an abortion? Well, that's a really important topic, and I think that one of the reasons that we see so few pastors and priests addressing this issue 
is because they know that there are a lot of people in the church who have an abortion in their past. There's women who have had abortions that they regret, and there's men who have encouraged uh, or even coerced abortions that, that may feel guilty about that. And so I actually try to tell these Christian leaders that that fact is actually a reason you should talk about abortion, not a reason to avoid it, because there are people who are beaten down with guilt and shame, who are sitting in church every day, who are believing the lies of the enemy, that they can't be used by God because of what they've done in the past. And so when pastors and priests address this issue, it's a great opportunity to remind people of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus and the fact that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, and that once he forgives us, he doesn't dwell on our sin any longer. I think it's, we have a tendency to keep beating ourselves up after we've sought forgiveness, but we know that as far as the East is from the West, so far has the Lord removed our sins from us when we seek forgiveness. And so I think there's a great opportunity for Christian leaders to remind the people in their congregation that there is forgiveness and healing in Christ. And so I think that's an important message to emphasize to help people who are struggling to be to find healing and then to go that additional step of explaining the value of children in the womb so that other people don't walk down that path of pain and destruction. What do you wish every Christian congregation would do in terms of the abortion issue? What, what is your vision for the church? Well, I would like to see every single church make sure that they are presenting a clear and compelling case for life so that there is no doubt in the minds of any person in those congregations that God values children in the womb and that we as Christians who are called to love our neighbors and to care for the least of these need to value and protect those children as precious individuals made in the image of God. And so for pastors to be preaching about this is absolutely critical. For I think it would be great if they also go the additional step and see if they can partner with a local pregnancy resource center to help support them, make sure they know about the pro-life resources in their area, Make sure that they tell their congregations that if someone ends up in a difficult pregnancy circumstance, even if it happens to be out of wedlock and out of what the Bible teaches about the uh, desired sexual ethic and the proper sexual ethic, that the church is ready to forgive, is ready to come alongside women and support them, and that this is not a place where, where people are going to be uh, shamed for a past mistake. We want them to find forgiveness not turn to another sin of abortion to conceal uh, a prior sin. And so to emphasize that to the church community is a great way to save lives as well. What are your biggest challenges post-Roe? Well, I think there's always been a huge issue of apathy within the Christian church, which is part of why I founded Reason for Life. And I think that there might even be a tendency for that to increase following Roe because a lot of people don't fully understand what the consequence of Roe being overturned is, that, that we have now entered a particularly critical period for people to understand the truth about the value of life in the womb because for the first time in a half a century, the Supreme Court has said the people can decide. And so now Christian leaders 
in churches and in Christian schools have an especially great responsibility to make sure that their people are deciding well and consistent with the Bible's teachings, and not to sit back and think the battle has won because it has simply entered a new phase. And uh, you, you know, I just saw the vote in Kansas from yesterday where Kansas voters had an opportunity to make clear that their constitution does not guarantee a right to abortion. And sadly, that failed. And I think we would have seen a different result if every church in Kansas was making sure that the people in their church understood this issue from a biblical perspective. And I know in November, there's going to be more ballot initiatives in several states on the issue. The topic is uh, quite critical. And so I think for pastors to understand that while this may be a political issue, it's first and foremost a biblical issue that's close to the heart of God. Their congregations are going to be choosing between life and death, and they need to be equipped to choose life. And so that's what I'd like to see them step up and do. Samuel, you are so convicted and it's um, so compelling to listen to you. Your bio mentioned that you've been pro-life since you were a child. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about your pro-life convictions and where they stem from. Well, I think I was around the age of seven when I first learned about abortion. And my child's heart was just shattered by the knowledge that some children are being killed in the womb. And I believe at that time, God placed a burden on my heart to work towards ending abortion. So from about seven years of age on, that has been a key driving force in my life, has been to work towards ending abortion. And so that is what I have been doing ever since in trying to proceed that way and had a chance to do some pro-life litigation with the great group Alliance Defending Freedom and now doing this work in trying to mobilize Christian churches and Christian schools to present the biblical and scientific case for life. And wonderful work it is. Samuel Green, thank you so much for your amazing, amazing advocacy for the children in the womb and for their mothers. Absolutely. It's a true pleasure. And thank you for your hard work. Uh, individuals who want to learn more can go to reasonforlife.org. And there's even a full sample sermon available on that website that they can just download and print and give to their pastor or priest and politely encourage them to preach about this issue. I also travel yeah, and we're preach gonna, churches. We're going to have to end it there, Samuel. Thank you so much. Positively Pro-Life is made possible through the generous support of the members of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.